This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Evan Wasuka. Coming up, Pacific leaders urge not to back down as Japan's deadline to release nuclear-treated water looms. The Pacific community throw their support behind a campaign for an Indigenous voice in Australia's parliament. And Tongans look back one year after one of the world's largest volcanic eruptions. We'll have more on those stories coming up. But first, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has wrapped up a two-day visit of Papua New Guinea. It was a historic trip with Mr Albanese becoming the first non-PNG leader to address the country's parliament. In his speech to MPs, he reflected on shared history between the two countries and pledged to improve relations, including security. In the years ahead, Australia and Papua New Guinea have a chance to honour our shared history of service in the cause of peace by adding to it. Deepening our defence ties and enhancing our national security cooperation and achieving a swift conclusion to negotiations on a bilateral security treaty. A treaty that will underpin our work together to address PNG's priority needs, including law and order challenges, strengthening the justice system and strengthening the rule of law. A treaty based on deep trust, and a treaty that builds on the family-first approach to regional security. An example to others and an investment in the future of our partnership. That's Mr Albanese speaking in Parliament, and the ABC's Belinda Cora was in Port Moresby covering Mr Albanese's trip. Now, Belinda, how significant was the visit by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and what sort of reception did he get when he arrived in the country? Even before he arrived, a lot of people were talking about it. And, um, he was met by our PNG Defence Force with a 19 gunman salute at the APEC terminal. And he was um, met by our Deputy Prime Minister and all the state ministers who were also at the airport when Parliament was already in session. Traditional dancers followed through. They also welcomed him at Parliament House. Um, before he could enter the house to give his address, which caught the attention of many of the country's MPs, more than 100 MPs who were seated there um, because of what he was speaking about, especially to do with the challenges and the bond that continues between the two countries since independence. Before the visit, a defence treaty between Australia and Papua New Guinea was also on the cards. Now, that didn't happen or it hasn't been completed, but just how much closer is Australia and PNG towards a defence or security agreement? Yes, a lot of expectations yesterday as the two countries met at the APEC House um, for the um, leaders' dialogue. However, a press conference that followed that meet had indicated that final negotiations will still continue until the end of April when a final security treaty can be signed by both countries. In a statement, both leaders said that the agreement would further enhance security partnership by providing a legally binding framework for security cooperation across many areas of interest and common interests and contribute to bilateral and regional security, trust and stability. So um, we're hoping that mid this year we could see some something signed and concrete into moving forward with this um, security uh, treaty 
which a lot ha- a lot has been said and talked about over the last couple of days. Belinda, Anthony Albanese also made a visit to WeWork in the northern part of PNG. What was the significance of this stop? We saw the footage, very colourful. Uh, tell us a bit more about what happened here. So Mr. Albanese left Port Mosby for WeWork mainly to go and pay his respects and also lay with to the country's first Prime Minister, Grand Chief Sir Michael Somare, when he didn't have the opportunity to then. But it was it was sort of a... It was a very moving moment for not only the Prime Minister, but his delegation who were actually impressed with what they saw on ground. And you could see from all social media, the comments that were coming in. Um, A lot of people around WeWork Town and especially overseas in Australia were impressed with the colorful performances that the people on ground um, had given to um, welcome Prime Minister Anthony Albanese into the province and into the town. And so he's moved on from WeWork up to Korea Heights, which is the home of the late Grand Chief Sir Michael Somare. And it, it was emotional for him to meet the children of the great late Grand Chief Sir Michael Somare. So his three sons and daughter, Dalciana Somare, were there to receive him at, the, at their home, at their family home, move on to welcoming uh, Mr. Albanese to their father's final resting place, which is located in a very beautiful um, area of um, WeWork up on the hill. So it was it was a very colorful um, morning up in WeWork. Um, it really showed that the security, the people on ground, the people around Korea Heights, the people around WeWork Town and East Tepic were, were, were actually ready to welcome Mr. Anthony Albanese this morning. And that's what we had in the last couple of days. Now, Belinda... Anthony Albanese was only in PNG for a couple of days, but what are the people saying about this visit and has it had an impact on uh, the people in the country? Very important question. And most people, most city working class citizens here in Port Moresby are, are, are probably, I should say, optimistic about this visit as they've been able, um, have they been, as they've been with past prime ministers of Australia who have also visited the country. Um, for, for this time round, they felt that it was more historical. It brought in a bond. It had a prime minister who came and addressed the parliament face to face, which was something different from most of the visits. So um, a lot of good comments, optimistic about the future between the two countries and what we have been able to talk about and discuss at APEC House in the last couple of days. Uh, Judging from the comments online, um, they hope that the pressing concerns that are beneficial to Papua New Guineans, ordinary Papua New Guineans, are not only dealt with, but taken seriously by both sides, especially when it comes to long-term commitments and the ease of making their lives a little bit more comfortable, Uh, that whatever outcomes that may possibly be, uh, it may impact their lives one way or another. ABC's reporter in Port Moresby, Belinda Cora. The deadline for Japan to release treated wastewater from the wrecked Fukushima nuclear power plant is looming closer. A delegation from the Pacific Islands Forum is heading to Tokyo to try and halt or delay the release, which could take place as early as March. But at least two scientific experts from the forum say they won't be going on the trip unless certain concessions by Japan are made. Dubravka Volodir with more. Every day, workers at the ruined Fukushima power plant flush water through its melted reactors to keep them cool. 
that wastewater is stored in tanks, and after a decade, Japan says those tanks are nearly full. Japan plans to release that water, which has been treated into the Pacific Ocean, as early as March this year. It says the process is safe, and the International Atomic Energy Agency supports it. But the plan is not popular in the Pacific. Forum Secretary General Henry Puna will lead a delegation to Japan next month to once again raise its opposition to the plan. You know, we're impressed on Japan. That if we are truly friends, that friends don't withhold information from one another, and you know we need to share. I'm pleased that、uh, you know over the Christmas、uh, New Year break,、uh, Japan has must must have thought about it, and have come back with this invitation for a meeting in Japan. He hopes that a panel of independent experts employed by the forum. And a few leaders will join him. Some nuclear experts have said the treated water will only contain one radionuclide in higher amounts, tritium. They have said tritium is essentially a part of water and is safe. But the panel of independent experts employed by the forum secretariat as advisers is questioning the plan's safety. The arguments being made for the safety of their plan going forward. Has not been demonstrated to our satisfaction, and so that's where we stand on it as a panel. With the consensus is that there are major gaps in the data that do not support this plan. And if they can fill those data gaps, then we would certainly reconsider that position. Dr. Bob Richmond is the director of the Kiwalo Marine Laboratory at the University of Hawaii and one of the forum's experts. But he won't be going to Japan unless the information is handed over first. We don't see adequate responses to the scientific questions that we've raised, and so, quite candidly, the scientific panel does not feel comfortable in going to Japan as a group under those auspices until we feel that there is a good faith effort to provide the science and the information that was requested. If we can't get straight answers to our questions and we can't get access to the data that we need to go forward. Um, we don't want to be put in a position for a photo op to say that this was a consultation with the panel. If in fact that we don't feel that、um, adequate and accurate data are being provided for our ability to discern what's really the potential outcomes going forward. Another expert panel member, marine radiochemist Dr. Ken Busler, shares that concern. So what they're really saying is, trust us, we'll take care of this before we release it. But over these. Years they haven't been able to show that, so we're really, you know, at this point seeking at least a delay, some time frame, you know, acknowledgement of these concerns. Once we see that acknowledgement and a confirmed postponement, then I think we could be more likely to show up and talk. But we've tried, and we're just not getting enough response to really feel that they're paying attention to our concerns. Nuclear weapons and waste have a tragic legacy in the Pacific region. Where the UK, US, and French governments tested nuclear bombs, with many communities still dealing with a deadly legacy. Many other nuclear plants around the world also release treated wastewater into the sea, but experts say one of the key differences with water from Fukushima is the vast amount and the fact that it's a disaster site rather than a functioning power plant. 
The General Secretary of the Pacific Conference of Churches, Reverend James Bagwan, says Pacific countries should stand together in their opposition. I think we're running out of time in addressing this issue. The Pacific community is clear in that they do not want this nuclear or radiated wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear plant in our oceans. He says PIFs should take a strong message to Japan. I think the time for dialogue and investigation is over, but we need to go with a very, very strong message to say to Japan, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And the Pacific Island countries really need to agree on that. Otherwise, there's no point in going to, to discuss. It's no longer the time of just asking nicely. Reverend James Bagwan from the Pacific Conference of Churches ending that report from Dubravka Volodaire. An historic referendum is due to take place in Australia later this year, when people will be asked to vote on whether the country's indigenous population should have their own voice in Parliament. The move comes more than 200 years after the British colonised Australia and wiped out many indigenous peoples after seizing their land. In order for the indigenous voice to be heard, though, the constitution will have to be amended And as Marion Farr reports, within the Pacifica communities in Australia, there's plenty of support for such a move. Marion Farr reporting there. For Fijian-born Salome Swan, an Indigenous voice to Parliament in Australia is a no-brainer. I would agree wholeheartedly about this move. She's one of thousands of Pacific Islander Australians who will vote in the referendum later this year. They'll be asked if they support the idea of changing Australia's constitution to allow for the formal recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I think that would make a huge difference and would heal a lot of pain that Indigenous Australians have had. The proposal comes after years of consultation with the Indigenous community on how they would like to be recognised. They weren't interested in symbolism. They didn't want it just to be some words and a pattern. They hid in the constitution. They wanted some kind of substantive change that would improve their lives. Professor Anne Toomey is an expert in Australian constitutional law from the University of Sydney. So the actual amendment would say something to the effect of there shall be a voice to parliament. So it mandates that it exists and then it gives it a function. And the function is making representations to parliament and also to the executive government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The voice would function like an advisory body of representatives that could weigh in on policies and legislation. Instead of challenging the validity of laws after they've been enacted, the idea here was to have a say before laws are made so that you can influence laws that will affect you. Professor Toomey says the voice would not have a legally binding say in any government decisions, nor the power to veto any proposed laws. It's really directed at simply allowing it the ability to inform Parliament and the executives. The Australian government says the referendum could be held as early as August, and Salome Swan is looking forward to voting. We as Fijians would really feel and and know how important this move would be for them, you know, to feel how we feel about being owners of our own countries. Professor of Social Work Gioji Ravulo, another Fijian Australian, believes many Pacific Islanders will support the voice. As Indigenous people to the Pacific ourselves, we have 
a sense of connection and an allyship. I know over the many years of working across the community, even in my current roles at the University of Sydney, there's a synergy that Pacific Indigenous people have with First Nations Australians. Professor Ravulo says it's an important step for Australia. It's not just about providing First Nations Australians with opportunities to talk about Indigenous matters and affairs, but it's also an opportunity for Indigenous ways of knowing and doing, being and becoming, to also meaningfully be incorporated in modern-day Australia. South Sea Islander elder Auntie Marion Healy agrees. She says many people in her community are married or related to Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander Australians. I have hope that um, white Australia uplifts First Nation, that their voice is heard. And although South Sea Islanders are not Indigenous to Australia, Auntie Marion says they face similar struggles. This is not our land, but the struggles are, are very similar from employment to housing to health to education. She hopes a voice to Parliament will benefit the South Sea Islander community and eventually pave the way for their perspectives to be heard as well. I don't want to take away from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people and their voice, but I'd like to see the government have the courage to acknowledge what they did 160 years ago in the Pacific out of the 80 islands that they took our people from. Indigenous representation within government is something Maori community leader Nina Taukiri also feels strongly about. I suppose largely because it's something we fought for in our country. The New Zealand Parliament has seven reserve seats for politicians of Maori descent. While the voice to Parliament would not give Indigenous Australians an actual seat in Parliament, Ms Taukiri thinks it's a good first step. Yeah, I actually hope it goes through. I'd be excited for that to happen uh, for the Indigenous people here. But she says there needs to be more awareness about the referendum before it is held. I think it's something that people need to know about. An official campaign encouraging Australians to vote yes begins next month, as does another campaign opposing the voice to Parliament. Historically, most referendums in Australia have been unsuccessful and criticism of the voice is already mounting, mostly focused around a lack of detail about how it would function. But Professor Anne Toomey says the proposed constitutional amendment is deliberately broad. What you put into the constitution is just the basics, that it exists and it must continue to exist, and that it has this function of making representations to parliament and the government, but all the rest of it is uh, left for parliament to determine so that there is flexibility. So if problems arise in the future, you can legislate to make sure that it you know, operates effectively. Whether it ever gets to that stage will all come down to how Australians vote. This Sunday marks one year since the eruption of the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai volcano, which is the largest felt in almost 200 years. When it exploded, it sent ash and water vapor halfway to space, generated tsunami waves across the globe, and reshaped Tonga's seafloor. Fred Hooper from the ABC's Pacific Prepared Program spoke to Tongans about what they remembered from that day. I saw something in the sky very weird. And given I took one of my dog to, with me to the beach, and my dog keep barking, and then I'm like, What's wrong? Are you hungry or something? And then I, when I realized something out um, in the clouds, it's weird. And then I told my sister, there's something really weird. There's this big cloud. It's 
growing. It's bigger. It was started small and now it's bigger. But when we arrived at her house that we got out and we saw and I saw that the mushroom clouds is on top of us. After the volcanic, when we were still running, we knew there was going to be a tsunami. But we didn't even know it was going to be that, that fast. And we weren't really sure about it until we saw, we saw the smoke. And we could see the smoke from where we were, like, going really high. And we were, we were really frightened. Yeah. Right. And what did you do then? We decided to go back because we were worried about the guys at home. Because uh, we were all out and then... Um, yeah, we decided to turn back and we turned back quite late because the sulfur started to fall from the sky and it actually blocked out the windows and, and, um, and the view. So you couldn't see where you were going? We couldn't see anything. Even the water from, the, from our windmills were, were finished. It was loud enough to recognize it, which is why I thought it was thunder. But then the first one, you know, it, it's uh, the first one it hit it was like thunder the second one the third one you know you could feel like the pressure in your ears it's like your eardrums gonna burst so that's when it finally dawned on me this is this is not thunder it doesn't work that way and then because we had other classes were gonna shatter and then the house shook third one was the huge one like it shook the house you know i felt like the glasses were gonna you know were gonna break and then we're gonna be injured inside the house and then when it shook like immediately the thing is like oh it's the volcano there's gonna be a tsunami next coming right. and because we're just a hundred meters the first thing is just to run it eh? So we had to we had to stop and look for a mud for a muddy puddle and go and get some water from there and like wipe off our windows and we had to do that over and over again and people were panicking and it was quite difficult for us to actually go back home because of uh, the people panicking running around even them getting uh, seeing people hop off trying to wipe their windows and stuff to see where they're going. Yeah, everyone was running like it was traffic. The road was traffic. It was packed. Everyone was running. No one. And even it got darker, like it got darker. You couldn't see anything. So many people were driving. So I was standing there and direct them, hey, come and take shelter here. It's for free. We can take shelter. This is already a safe ground for us. But then the people were just running on the road, you know, just flowing from, just going inland. I saw, you know, the elderly people, uh, going with kids, the youths, the babies, you know, people were just running wild on the road, carrying, you know, just the babies and yelling. And the people who were driving, they were just honking, honking. So you kind of like, something really wrong is going on, eh? Yeah, the, the sky started turning dark, like we couldn't see anything. It was like nighttime, but it's, it was still like in the afternoon. Yeah. It went all black, like the skies were all black. Um, but it was like five or yeah, six. It was, like, it was not yet. It was not yet eight or nine. It was already dark. It was only around it was, four, five. Yeah. It's like looking at a picture black and white. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It was just no color at all. Nothing mm. was green. Nothing was. You couldn't see any color. It was just black. People. We had, we had fam. We had people. They're not family. Yeah. They were just running around in front of our road and we had to tell them to come to 
inside. Yeah, right. Yeah, but we don't even know them. We're now back to the singing and how some people were able to stay calm and cope with the fear that they must have been feeling. Sia is a Tongan resident and a local storyteller. Her and her daughter were at home when the eruption happened. Like most people, they jumped in the car and headed inland. So as soon as we were about out the gate and she saw all these people running, you know, on the road and stuff, she's like, oh, mom, do you want me to sing? And then my daughter started singing. Actually, that really helped calm me down, you know, to try to get us to save. So she sang all the way until we got to my uh, brother's house, which was our place of refuge for the night. And help me clearly see our walk with Jesus and you will walk with me. Some spine-tingling memories there from last year's volcanic eruption in Tonga and the reporter there was Fred Hooper from Pacific Prepared. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Review for this week. I'm Evan Wasuka. Thank you for listening and do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from across the Pacific region.